Where did music all begin in your life? Where, where did music enter into your soul? It probably entered, I was probably in there when I was born. Um, I, I've got a strong belief that that's kind of what happens. You either, you're either, you know, blessed with it or you're not. Yeah. You know, there are many music lovers, but not as many actual players. Yeah. And I think you're born uh, with a passion, you know, and you just don't know it until something happens. Growing up in, in Scotland, um, my parents were big music fans. They didn't play anything, but they would have music evenings where they'd invite people over who actually sang and played music. And we always had an upright piano in the house. Wonderful. And uh, this guy called Ted Warwick would come by the house and sing like Scottish standards. And I mean, this is like a, a guy who would be in his 50s or 60s at the time. And this, again, it's 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah. And he blew me away by the sound of this guy's voice in the room. And uh, those kind of things were the things that, that they were like, wow, he's doing it. So maybe I can. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the, I guess that's why they call it, the Elton John podcast podcast. Today's episode is a two-parter, first of a two-parter. It's a celebration of the early years of Elton's most loyal musical ally, Davy Johnston. And this first part follows his folk roots through from his birth in 1951 up to his first session with Elton John in 1971. Davies played around 3,000 shows with Elton over the years. Roughly three quarters of all of Elton's solo shows, starting in 72, going through to 77, then again from 82 to 86, and then again from 88 through to the present day. I'm going to be celebrating Davy's influences, his early years as a gigging musician and his first year or so of playing with Elton. I'd like to give my thanks to the Sessions who have given me permission to use an interview with Davy, which was carried out by Don Famularo for their YouTube channel. That was the interview from the very beginning of the programme and it's going to pop up again several more times through this episode. They've recently put up a few more interviews as well with other members of the Elton John band, including John Mahon, 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 and Matt Bisonet, and other musicians such as Hal Blaine. They've got loads of great content, and I've put a link to their channel on my podcast page. This episode, as well as that, also owes a huge amount to Keith Haywood's interviews and his research for the second of his Elton John books called From the Tin Pan Alley to the Yellow Brick Road. I can recommend this book to you wholeheartedly if you've got even the most passing of interests in Elton's rise in the 70s. Um, there's also plenty of my own research here, as well as an interview with someone who's not been spoken to before. In the interview, at the beginning of the show, Davey mentioned a tenor vocalist called Ted Warwick, who uh, used to come by for music evenings in the family home. 
There aren't any recordings of Ted, although I did find a mention for him in a playbill from the Pavilion, Aberdeen, in April 1948, where he was part of a variety show alongside Billy Hood and his Paragon, and Agnes Eney at the piano. Instead of Ted, we've been listening to Robert Wilson, who's a more famous tenor, doing the Scottish standard Anna Laurie back in 1937. Back to Davy, courtesy of the sessions. My very first introduction to, say, rock and roll was, um, I have two older sisters, 10 and 12 years older than me. And uh, so when I was like four or five, so we're looking at like 1955, I was hearing Elvis 78s, you know, Jailhouse Rock. Yeah, they were playing, yeah. Hound Dog, and they, their records and that. And I'm going, what is this? I love it. This is great. I want to do this. And I knew that, you know, that it was, it was killing me at that time. Uh, and I loved it. Davey was given the chance to start some free violin lessons through his school from the age of around seven. Through this he learned how to read music, something that he says has been helpful for him throughout his career. The violin wasn't going to be enough for him though, as he told Don Famularo in the Sessions interview. I got tired of violin um, and I was just starting to get into the Beatles and the Stones. I'd be like 12 years old by this time. and. Um, you know, anybody who hears Day Tripper or something, oh. you know, the violin was here and then it went down here. And I saw it. And my sister, um, one of my sisters bought me a guitar, an acoustic guitar, uh, for Christmas one year when I was like 11 and a half or something. And immediately I, because I'd been playing violin, so I got it, the, the concept of strings. I picked it up real fast. and. I went to take lessons a few months after and found that I already knew more than the teacher. So I just thought, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna you know, listen to the radio. Davey mentions Hank Marvin as being a particular influence on his early guitar playing, as well as Elvis's guitarist, Scotty Moore. In time, as he says in his interview with The Sessions, he started to look beyond rock music, turning towards traditional music. A few years later, I got more into the idea of getting deeper into guitar. So I got into, I bought another acoustic, a good, reasonably good acoustic, and started listening to people like Bert Jansch and John Renborn and John Martin and, and that stuff like that. Yeah. The incredible string band, you know, yeah. really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, I learned how to finger pick, you know, which was, at first, I, I, I could have sworn that it was two guys playing a part. I mean, I, that's not one guy, you know. And then eventually, it was like, ah, oh, if he uses his thumb for the bass part and the other fingers in combination, oh, I get it. When sadness fills your heart And sorrow hides the longing to be free When things go wrong each day Fix your mind to escape your misery. 
Your troubled young life had made you turn to a needle of death. How strange your happy words have ceased to bring. But Yanch's Needle of Death from his debut album in 1965. Davey had been interested in Irish folk music from a very young age. An 11-year-old Davey was apparently to be found in the front row of a gig by the Dubliners, marvelling at the tenor banjo skills of Barney McKenna. Davey found himself on stage accompanying McKenna at the Sandy Bells in Edinburgh. Two banjos and tons of draft Guinness is what Davey recalls. He was apparently able to hold his own against the playing of his hero. Davey was born on the 6th of May 1951 in Corstofine, Edinburgh. Here's Davey talking to the sessions about his early days. Our family was a, you know, a middle working class, middle class, whatever you call it, yeah, family yeah, in, yeah. In, in Scotland. So they were kind of shocked to see me developing at this rate yeah, yeah. Uh, because by the age of 13, I was getting asked to join bands that were in their 20s, you know. It was kind of weird. And, and I, my, I was kind of freaked out by it. I would say, well, why why do you think I can work in your band? You know, I'm. I'm a school kid, you know, and you're men, yeah, you know, yeah. and they said, well, you're better than us. And I was like, okay, I'll join. And I must admit that the the odd few quid here and there, pounds, dollars, whatever yeah, you want to call it, so really that, didn't, that didn't hurt. When I yeah. saw that I could make some money out of it, it was like, it was great. Yeah, I was in various folk groups because the folk revival was very big in those days and that did me a lot of good because uh, it led me to learn other instruments, uh, banjo, mandolin. There were two very big heroes for me in, in those days on the folk scene as such. Uh, one was a Scotsman called Archie Fisher, who's still working, still playing, and a brilliant singer, songwriter, you know, wow. guitar player, just great guy yeah. all the way around, and, and very, very encouraging. Open the door softly I've something to tell you dear Open it up no wider Than the crack upon the floor Open the door softly I've something Warm summer grasses 
half whispered it to your ear. Skeins of silver water ask you patiently to hear. Tall, lonely timbers have taught it to. Sad winds in autumn will tell you as they pass by. Wild geese flying eastward leave their music in sky. Listen at evening and answer the curlew's cry. Open the Door Softly from Archie Fisher's debut album released in 1968. Davey will no doubt have caught Archie at the Triangle Club in Edinburgh, which was Davey's home folk club. So named because it was in a YMCA hall and the YMCA use a triangle in their logo. Almost as soon as Davey had picked up the guitar, he found himself in bands with musicians much older than him. One of these was with singer Titch Freer at the Triangle. They called themselves the Carrick Folk. And according to some recollections on the internet, they were sharing a stage with Archie Fisher, Barbara Dixon... Hamish Imlach and Matt McGinn, no later than 1966, when Davy would have just been 14, turning 15. Toorallo, rallo, rallo, we'll tell you something of a true. You wouldn't hear your telly then if it was nae for the union. I had a boss in Aberdeen, the nicest fella ever I've seen, but I think he thought I was off a green afore I joined the union. Toorallo, rallo, rallo, I'll tell you something of a true. You wouldn't hear your telly then if it was nae for the union. A pal of mine has bought a car, a second-handed Jaguar. He'd never travelled half as far, but wasn't he for the union? Toorallooralooralooroo, I'll tell you something of a true. You wouldn't hear your telly then if it wasn't he for the union. Matt McGinn, not so much a musician as a poet and a people's historian. He was something of an elder statesman of the burgeoning scene. As well as celebrating the music, the folk music revival was built on strong socialist beliefs and a sense of community. Republican sentiment was particularly stirred up when the American Navy sailed the Polaris submarine up the Holy Lock in the early 1960s, and music was a big part of the response. Air Folk Club, for example, which hosted everyone in the 60s, Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger, Martin Carthy and Dave Swarbrick, Josh McRae and Matt McGinn, was run by a group of teachers and CND members much older than the teenagers and young adults who attended. Someone a bit closer to Davy's age group was Billy Connolly, who at that time was part of a band called The Humble Bums. <laughs> Thank you. 
little blue lady with the pink umbrella I wish you would talk to me I'm terribly green to this swinging scene And I could use the company Ah, little blue lady with the pink umbrella Why do you walk alone like this? If you let this fella carry your umbrella I promise you a life of bliss Jerry Rafferty Humblebums from a radio show in late 1968 singing Little Blue Lady. Davies said, I first met Billy Connolly in Airdrie when I was 15 and he was about 20. We hit it off and I ended up playing with him a few times. Looking back, it's unreal. First off, I can't believe my parents let me go and play in pubs at the age of 15. Secondly, I was playing with Billy Connolly. What an amazing experience. I was a massive fan of his, and back then, Billy was a very important part of the music scene. Davies' band, the Carrick Folk, got around. Among their regular haunts were the folk clubs in Liverpool, including the Green Moose Coffee Bar, and that's the uh, Kirby Town Threes Folk Club. The lead singer and songwriter of the Kirby Town Three was Willie Russell, who would eventually become a playwright known for his strong female characters with their Liverpudlian charm like in Educating Rita and Shirley Valentine as well as the musical Blood Brothers. Willie had met Barbara Dixon up in Edinburgh while on tour and this is likely to be when he met uh, Davy and Titch Freer as well. There are no recordings of the Kirby to Hound 3 unfortunately. Willie describes his early music and lyrics as being very morose Here's a recording of Barbara Dixon, though, along with Archie Fisher singing Highland Harry in 1969. A musician called John Howson has a story from this era from an internet forum. He says, On a Friday night, after the Carlton Club, they'd open up the Moose Coffee Bar for late night coffee and bacon butties. I remember one night, Martin Carthy and Dave Swarbrick had played a concert at the Philharmonic Hall and they came down, but without their instruments. So Martin borrowed the crappy house nylon strung guitar and Dave borrowed a tenor banjo from a couple of young musicians from Scotland who always seemed to be around. Yes, the very same. Back in Scotland, there were folk clubs springing up everywhere. One of them was the Muir Edge Folk Club at the Buckend Hind Roadhouse in Fife, which was started by Jim Lang in 1967. Jim had a band with his wife, Maureen, and a couple of other musicians, which they called the Fife Reavers. 
Here's Jim, now sadly passed away, in his own words. We started working clubs and venues all over Britain. Whilst performing at the Elbow Room in Cacoldi, we heard a young duo from Edinburgh and invited them to visit us at our club. They came and did a 20-minute set, had a disagreement, and one left. The other, namely Davy Johnston, stayed in the club and became a reaver by the end of the evening. Davy was a remarkably talented instrumentalist who contributed greatly to our new sound on banjo, mandolin and guitar. Jim kept some pretty pristine records, which you can find linked in the notes of this show. It shows a booking diary with the Carricks booked in on the 1st of September 1967, for which they were paid £8. A month before, the very highly esteemed Alex Campbell played for £20. Here, then, is an interview that I was able to do with Jim's son, Russell, who, at the age of 11 or so, played on, toured and promoted an album for the Fife Reavers, which was released on Columbia in 1969, after Davy had left to make his way in the musical world. Me and my brother used to have a bit of a joke when we got that little bit older, and we used to say that if my dad talked to anybody for longer than 10 minutes at the bar, they were going to be famous within about six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a rule of thumb. He kind of was magnetised. He knew what talent was. He, he knew it when he saw it. Davy was still at school when my dad first met him. He was a senior. I can't remember the school he, he went to in Edinburgh, but I remember going with my mum and dad to Edinburgh to watch, I think Davy was playing in some kind of school thing, uh, maybe Jigs and Reels on the banjo or something like that. His mm. neighbour, you'll know of, uh, is it Titch Fryer? Yes. I mean, yeah. his neighbour was yeah, I don't know if it was his physical geographical neighbour, but Davy and Titch used to have a little duo going. When Davy spotted my dad's band, he spotted a chance to spread his wings instrumentally. Um, i.e. what Davy was was a fantastic, fantastic arranger and organiser of songs mm. and um, he was an embellisher. He, was a, he could take something that was maybe didn't sound that interesting and turn it into something magic. He'd, he'd turn it for black and white into colour, if you like. Yeah. You know. What was Davy like on stage when you saw him play, say, particularly when, when he was with your dad and letting rip Davey, a bit. Uh, Davy was kind of quite mild mannered. He wasn't a show off. He wasn't no. uh You didn't. You know, you would hear the you would hear the guitar or the mandolin or whatever, and you would have to look. He wasn't sitting there going, "It's me." He would just sit and he would play, and it would be immaculate. So of course, anybody that was tuned in and listening to the music, the, the, their eyes would be looking at the stage. Who is it? Yeah. And then he would see Davy. But Davy stuck out a mile because he had really quite long blonde hair at the time. For the times, it was, uh, end, you know, 66, 67, mm. 68 maybe. Um, and you'd have to look for him. He wasn't a show. He wasn't a... Uh, Did he hide behind his hair a bit? A little. He would, he would have it in that kind of do what would be known as the doodle style, <laughs> the magic roundabout like. Yeah. Uh, he was very quiet. He was very quiet. He was very gentle. He was very... I remember him as being mild. I mean, it was good fun when I got to know him because we were kids, obviously. Like, so he would have a lot of fun with us, like you know. Yeah. By the time he was in Magna Carta in 1970, he mm-hmm. was doing solos um, yeah. on the tenor banjo with the banjo behind his head and stuff like that. He moved. That's right. He, he moved. Quite, he, did you ever yeah. see him do that sort of thing as well? 
I don't, well, there's a funny, I don't know if you've got this picture there, but there's a picture where there's me, my dad, and Davy sitting, yeah. and Davy did the cover bit, because what he did was he played the left-hand side uh, of the guitar and the right-hand side of the mandolin. I just had to play the left-hand side of the mandolin, <laughs> and I think my dad played the chords on the guitar. And if you look, you'll see a funny little picture with the three of us together, yeah. and that is us playing something queer. I'm playing one half of the mandolin, Davy's playing the other half of it. My dad's playing one half of the guitar, and Davy's playing the other bit. So he had that ability, like a drummer, who'd be able to dislocate his limbs and, and one half of his mind to go to playing the guitar and the other half going to play the mandolin. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'd assumed that that was just a photo op. I didn't know that you could actually no, no, play a no, song like that. <laughs> no, we used to do it as a trick. We used to do it as a trick. What was he All like as a teacher? Oh, what Davy would do, well, I would sit and watch him, obviously, I would yeah. avidly watch his fingers. He wouldn't actually, be, I mean, when he was across the house, I would have to ask him to play. I would probably badger him. Um, and then there would be times, after the folk club would finish, usually what would happen was the main artists would come home to our house. And remember, it was 10 o'clock shutting hours then in Scotland, like, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the bars shut. We'd have a house full. Uh, of course, I would be me and my little brother. Not so much my brother, but me. I'd be up to see what was going on, and I'd be allowed to stay up. So I could sit and watch Davy and the other players who were in the house at the time. Yeah. Uh, so I would have to watch his fingers. But what we did do after a while, we had an old tape recorder, a ferrograph thing. My dad was a teacher, and he would be able to access like a, a decent tape recorder for the school. Mm-hmm. And what Davy used to do every week without fail is he would record something for me. And then he would say to me, when I come back next Friday, because the folk club was on on a Friday night, he would maybe give me a guitar piece. Not something too complex for me, but not something too complex for him. Or a mandolin piece. Or a banjo piece. Although I don't remember having a banjo at that time. And he would say, when I come back next Friday, I want you to be able to play that. And I would sit with a tape recorder all week, running it back and forward, running it back and forward, trying to remember his finger movements in my head and get it for him coming back. And when he used to appear on the Friday because he got dropped off at the Kirkcaldy station, yeah. my dad would pick him up and almost the first thing he would do when he would come in is he would look at me and he'd go, I'm, I'm going to be checking now. <laughs> and I would sit and play them, maybe fluff it up a couple of times and he would go, you can do better. And then he could record more for me to do for next week, like, you know. So I remember that period of my life of just always looking forward to him coming on Friday to be able to play whatever it was he'd left for me, like. And here's Russell's dad, Jim, singing a song called Reverie from the Reavers album. Shine 
It's a very interesting piece of music, ethereal, with Jim sounding a bit like a Scottish Lee Hazelwood. I'd like to thank Russell for the interview. Considering he was so young at the time, he's got some great memories. He also told me an excellent David Bowie story from David's tour of Scotland in 1969. It doesn't belong here, but it's an essential tale, and you can find a link to it in the episode description. The Fife Reavers tale brings with it a couple of delicious Elton connections. First off, the Reavers album was produced by Don Paul, ex of the Viscounts, who is known for having signed Don Partridge to Columbia, as well as producing his single Rosie. Don Partridge is the artist that Steve Brown also gets a lot of credit for discovering and breaking. The second connection is even odder. A key supporter of the Reavers was Long John Baldry, and Russell was actually given a 12-string guitar by LJB. A close look at the booking diary for the Muir Edge reveals the name of another Irish musician, a certain Noel Murphy, who was booked in to play on the 10th of November 1967, part of a Scottish tour he was doing at the time. Here's Noel from the second Keith Haywood book. I made a point of listening to the people who were on with me, and this guy was just astounding. He had long blonde hair and a lovely laconic way about him with fingers that were about 10 inches long, playing the tenor banjo or the mandolin, and was just a different class altogether. We had a beer and a chat at half time, and it became clear that we knew various people on the circuit, even though he was only 16. He told me that he'd taught himself by watching other people, but it was clear from watching him that he'd added an awful lot to what he had picked up. He was that good. So, in the second half of his set, Murphy invited Davy up on stage, and with no discussion or planning, they played together, and they made a musical connection. Davey takes up the story in his interview with the Sessions. Somebody at a folk club called Noel Murphy, funnier, funniest guy on the planet, uh, Irish guy. Um, we were, you know, I, I just loved his music. He loved my playing. And he was playing at this club in Scotland. That I, used to, I was kind of part of this band that played there. And um, he made the mistake of saying, if you're ever in London, look me up. So... You know, about six months later, I told my mom, I said, Dad, I said, I'm, I got to go. You know, and I was 17. The deal was, I said, look, they were petrified, obviously. And I said, well, look, what about this? If I try for two years and if I don't make it, I'll get a real job. You know, I'll become a bank manager or <laughs> to something. To get a well, real well, job. Uh, those, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's oh, Little did I know <laughs> that I was going to be working harder than anybody on the planet. But, um, yeah, and that was, the, that was the deal, the rough deal. So I got on the train and uh, with 11 pounds in my pocket, that's about 20 bucks. Absolutely. And uh, knocked on my friend's door who said, if you're ever in London, and he kind of said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, well, you, you invited me. And uh, he went, okay. So we became a duo, and uh, he sang Irish traditional songs, and I played tenor banjo and guitar and mandolin, 
Davy popping up on Noel's doorstep in 1968 was the beginning of a long-standing musical partnership between the two of them, which was billed either as Noel Murphy or as Murph and Shaggis, which was Noel's nickname for Davy since he was shaggy-haired and from the land of the haggis. Noel describes a typical gig in the Keith Hayward book. He says, I would normally start a gig to get the audience relaxed and join in so I could see for myself if they were in the mood for singing. Davy and I just busked through most of the gigs we did and he did his party pieces whichever way he wanted. He sat on my left on the stage and I was standing up and he would reach up with his right hand with his banjo on his lap and tune my guitar. It never failed to raise a laugh. Noel remembers one particular show at the White Bear in Hounslow where David Bowie had a residency. Davy was far too talented to hold back. He had a totally free hand to do as many solo spots as he wanted. When Davy was doing his solo, people would get excited and clapping, but there was this one person playing air banjo and it looked hilarious. Since those days, I've seen some Elton John gigs, he says, and I've often thought, with all this excitement going on, why doesn't he let him play the Mason's apron on the tenor banjo and let him do his own thing? Here's Davy doing his own thing, Rakish Paddy on the tenor banjo, a tune you might recognise from the Fairport Convention album, Legion Leaf, as well as from the Titanic soundtrack. on Noel's second album, Another Round, which features two stunning bits of banjo playing from Davy, this one, and another called The Flowers of Edinburgh. Davy's also there on the cover, wowing the punters alongside Noel in a London pub, warm beer close at hand. Noel has talked a bit about what it was like on tour back in those days. We used to go back to people's houses to stay after the gig, and we sometimes never got to bed until five in the morning just drinking and playing. Murph and Shaggis were moderately successful, but much loved on the folk scene. For the last six months of Davy's work with Noel in 1970, they absorbed the double bass player from the Straubs, and they played as a trio. This band called themselves Draft Porridge, 
a name that was made up on the spot by Noel during an interview with the Melody Maker about the band, based on Noel's observation that the only thing that indecisive Davy ever definitely wanted at any given time, day or night, was porridge. Davy was on the brink of making a big decision, though. In the summer of 1970, he'd started going out with Di, who he'd later marry. Noel feels that Di had a role in getting Davy to take his music-making a little bit more seriously. He says, What happened in the end was short notice. He joined a band called Magna Carta without consulting me about it. But we were not in any formal arrangement, so it didn't really matter. I was only showing Davy the ropes and nothing more. He was destined for far better things than I could give him, and we both knew that. He was destined for better things than Magna Carta could offer as well. That's why I was delighted that he did session work, so that he could work with people other than me and get the experience and exposure. In many ways, the Magna Carta gig started out as just another bit of session work for Davy. Here he is again in his interview with The Sessions. I got a reputation around town, um, around London, and started to get session work. So how, how fast did that happen by the time you Pretty came? quick. That's amazing. Within about six months. That's amazing. One of the reasons being that not many people played mandolin and banjo that well, mm. and not many people, nobody played sitar. I was like the guy. We need to go back a couple of years to find out about the sitar, probably to early 1968. By then, Davy had more than caught the attention of Scottish folk legend Archie Fisher, as he says here in his interview with The Sessions. He invited me to his apartment one night. I walked in there and he was sitting on a rug, a Persian rug with incense sticks going, playing the sitar. <laughs> and I just went, oh, i got to get one of those. <laughs> you know, because I was a just a freak for anything with strings on it. <laughs> so a year or so later, I was... I rustled up enough money to send off a check to Bombay, India, where they built me a, what, it, what was termed a professional Indian sitar. And it arrived another year later in a, in a gigantic case, because they're big, you know, in a case like a coffin, you know, <laughs> and I had to go down to London docks and pick it up. <laughs> Carter were formed in 1969 with a sound that bridged the divide between the progressive rock movement and the folk music scene. This is Times of Change from their debut album. It's a more straightforwardly birdsy, pentangly number for them. In 1970, demos of their second album, Seasons, found their way to the door of Gus Dudgeon, who offered to produce the music and to get Tony Visconti to arrange it. Chris Simpson, 
guitarist and singer with the band, remembers planning the album at Gus's house, along with Visconti and a young lad called David Bowie. Expanding the sound of the three-piece band in the sessions that followed were Visconti on bass, Danny Thompson on acoustic bass, and Rick Wakeman on keyboards. It was recorded at Trident, where Elton had been sporadically recording Tumbleweed Connection. In the Keith Haywood book, Chris Simpson remembers a young lad called Reg Dwight popping in and out to see Gus. And Simpson actually helped to promote the Elton John album at the time, alongside Stuart Epps, sticking stickers all over the trains and platforms of the Northern Line on the London Underground as he travelled into central London to record his album. The band was still out on the road during these sessions, and one of their gigs was the 1970 Cambridge Folk Festival, where a highlight on the bill was Murph and Shaggis. Simpson remembers seeing Davy playing the 12th Street rag with the mandolin behind his head and becoming interested. Back in London, Gus Dudgeon had suggested that a guitar part on Give Me No Goodbye would be a good idea. It was looking like it was going to become a single. A part was duly recorded by Mick Ronson, but it turned out to be too heavy for the band's liking, not a million miles away from the story of Mammon Across the Water, by the sounds of it. Chris Simpson remembered Davy, and Gus agreed, not much liking the name Shaggis, and then when he turned up not thinking much of his outfit that he was wearing, Davy didn't actually have an electric guitar either, and he'd had to borrow one before the session. Chris says, Davy played a beautiful slide guitar on the song. The tuning was dodgy, and I'm surprised that Gus let it go past, but Davy's playing was so intuitive. It's likely to be Davy on sitar as well, of course. He contributed to some other songs on the album, as was needed, and Gus was impressed. Fortuitously for Davy, the band's guitarist left during the sessions for the album, and Davy was offered a place in the band. He bought a new black Fender Stratocaster pulled on the brushed black velvet band uniform and got on the road with the band. They became incredibly tight, playing all over Europe during 1970 and the first half of 1971. One memorable night for the band came at the Royal Albert Hall, supporting the Beach Boys. Chris remembers, we ended the set with Davy playing a banjo solo and the crowd started to clap. A bit as Davy built up speed, he got faster and faster, and just when the crowd thought he couldn't go any further, he flipped the banjo over his head and continued to play it at breakneck speed. He finished, and the crowd went mad. He goes on to describe being threatened by Beach Boys bodyguards to not go back on for an encore. We don't have a recording of that performance, unfortunately. We do have some Davy Magna Carta fireworks, though, from a live album that was recorded in 1971 in Amsterdam, 
This song's just called Banjo, but if I'm not mistaken, this is the Mason's Apron, the centerpiece of sets by the Dubliners. And it was also a song that ended up on the Fife Reavers album, played there by an 11-year-old Russell Lang. Here's Davies' version, though. live album features Davy on sitar for the beautiful song The Boatman which he wrote himself. The song would also turn up on an album by Colin Scott which came out in 1971. This is the Colin Scott version of the song. Flow, flow, I am the boatman. What 
Water be freezing and water be warm God of the water, bless the boatman Boatman flow, flow, I am the boatman. Water be freezing and water be warm. God of the water, bless the boatman. Row, row, I am the boatman. Flow, flow, I am the boatman. Colin Scott was a progressive folk musician who was a big draw at the time. His self-titled debut album has got a great sound and it's worth seeking out. Davies credited on guitar, along with Brinsley Schwartz and Robert Fripp. Backing vocals are credited to Alan Hull from Lindisfarne, John Anderson from Yes, Peter Hamill from Van der Graaff Generator, and Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins from Genesis. Quite an array alongside the ever-present Rick Wakeman on the Trident piano. Now firmly a part of the session playing scene in London, Gus invited Davy to join the sessions for Torpin, Bernie's album of rather drab-sounding poetry readings, where he was accompanied by music written in a largely extemporised manner by a range of players, including Diana Lewis, Caleb Quay, and another guitarist and sitar player, Sean Phillips. Davy is credited as playing sitar and acoustic guitar, as well as banjo, mandolin and lute. And the album was recorded at DJM by Gus. When the heron wakes and sorrow leaves the lady of the river, then summer sings again where wind kissed life and life blessed rain by wild grass and windows where the fisherman is praying. For I will be as the Valkyrie with the strains of the war dogs to lead you, feeding their skulls in a feast of red sky, picking the pieces from all those who sin in the balm of a bright light. Davy's last bit of recording with Magna Carta was their 1971 album, Songs from Wasty's Orchard, which once again was recorded with Gus. Chris Simpson says that Gus took regular breaks during the recording of this album to deal with things like radio or TV interviews about Elton and that Elton's people regularly interrupted his work in the studio and he describes Gus as being reg-obsessive. Davey's got two songwriting credits on the album, the songs Down Along Up and Sponge as well as a joint credit on a song called Country Jam. This, though, is the last song on the album, Homegrown, which possibly has Davy on lead guitar. Out from the town where the air is clean And the birds sing a sweet song all day long And the water don't hide any fluid
Davey says in his interview with The Sessions. It was at this point, towards the end of the summer of 1971, that his phone rang. I got a call from Gus Dudgeon, and he said, look, Reg has got a session coming up, and uh, we've been looking for a guitar player to play this part, this specific part, on a song called Mad Men Across the Water. Finally then, the world of the 20-year-old Davy Johnston has overlapped with the world of the 24-year-old Elton John. The amount of work and growth that Davy had had to do to get to this point had been overwhelming. Part one of the Davy Johnston story ends here, with indecisive Davy on the brink of some of the biggest decisions of his career. Part two follows up the new routes that Davy was going to take, attending the Madman sessions, seeing himself through two astonishing Elton John band albums at the Chateau, and out onto the road, where he was starting the process of becoming an Axeman extraordinaire. As the music will show though, throughout all of this, yes, Davey developed some astonishing new skills, but at the heart of it, he never lost the sense of who he was musically. Up, looking, no dice throwing. 